Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball. It's midnight in Glasgow, and our next guest is Danny Gillen, author of Will You Love Me Tomorrow? Danny, welcome. Hi, Maggie. Uh, before we actually start to chat, can I get you to read a little bit for, uh, from Will You Love Me Tomorrow, just to give the listeners a sense of the book and put them in the picture? Sure, no problem at all, yep. Um, what I'll do, I've got, I've got a little scene and a bit scene here from a chapter where um, the, the two main characters, Jason Clements, the record company executive, and Claire Rivers, who's the widow of the dead musician Brian Rivers, meet for the first time in person to discuss the idea that they might give Brian a record company, uh, sorry, a record deal. So this is a little scene where they meet for the first time. Uh, and unfortunately, Jason has spent the night in a hotel making a bit too much use of the minibar previous to this, so he's feeling a little bit delicate during this meeting. Here we go. Mr. Clements. Jason stood and held out his hand. Claire, Mrs. Rivers, hi. Glad you made it. Please have a seat. Claire Rivers shook Jason's hand politely and slid into the booth opposite him, her so far silent escort slipping in beside her. I hope you don't mind. I asked Adam to come with me. A bit of moral support. At this, the guy in the cap reached out his hand and shook Jason's firmly. Hi, Adam Miller, he said in a broad Glaswegian accent, looking Jason directly in the eye. I'm a friend of Claire and Brian's. He gave Jason a look which Jason instantly recognised as saying, I'm here to make sure you don't mess her about, mate. Hi, Adam, that's no problem at all. The more the merrier, I guess. Can I get you something to drink? He gave her drinks ordered to the waitress, ordering another coffee for himself. They sat in silence for a moment, smiling awkwardly at one another. So, Jason said at last, I can only imagine this must be a little odd for you. His hangover returned and he broke out in a hopefully unnoticed cold sweat. He smiled crazily as Claire answered. Yes, I think I can safely say the irony of the situation isn't worse than any of us, Jason. She didn't sound angry so much as resigned. The drinks arrived and Jason felt a stab of nausea as he watched Adam take a swig of lager. He took a breath and said, Of course, of course, I'm sorry. Well, firstly, I really want to make it clear that what I have in mind isn't meant to in any way or sense be exploitative. He scanned this last sentence back in his mind to check it made sense. He was fairly sure it did. He found himself focusing on the froth moustache that now covered Adam's top lip, but his eyes and attention returned to Claire when she spoke. Maybe you could give us a clearer idea of what exactly it is you have in mind. Oh, sure, sure, of course. Jason considered excusing himself and going to the gents to splash cold water in his face. He felt pretty bad, but surmised that this was not the correct point for a music industry insider to disappear for five minutes, only to return fresh-faced and re-energised. Well, he said, it really depends on what you want out of this, Claire. Based on the demo, I'm pretty sure that at least two of those tracks could do reasonably well as singles, and if that's all we get, well, that's a lot. But the truth is, what I'm really holding out for is you letting me hear the rest of the songs Brian recorded. If there's enough there for an album, and they're good enough, then who knows? For this market, it's album sales that matter. Singles are basically a teaser. With the right marketing, we could... That's my main concern here, Jason, Claire said. I'm wondering what your idea of the right marketing might be. The hangover was back suddenly. Crunch time, Jason thought. He felt something alarming happening with his digestive system as he began to speak. Obviously, we would have to take account of circumstances, he said. This isn't something I've really talked through with anyone yet. I wanted to meet with you first, but the truth is that, well, Brian's 
status would have to come into play to a certain degree. They tried a winning smile, but didn't think he managed it too convincingly. Status was definitely the wrong word to have used. It got colder, and it had nothing to do with either the weather or his hangover. They couldn't exactly pretend the guy wasn't dead, could they? That would definitely cause problems in the live circuit. Even Jules Holland hadn't managed to orchestrate an actual resurrection as yet. He tried to regain the initiative before Clara Adam had a chance to respond. Please, he pleaded, please excuse my lack of tact. I'm just not sure how best to address this situation. Thank God you said situation and not problem. Tell me, Jason, Claire said, is it Brian's status as dead or as a suicide that's troubling you? Oh God, no, no, you've misunderstood me. It's the dead thing, totally the dead thing. The suicide aspect is fine. He replayed this statement back in his mind to see if it made sense. Oh shit. No, no, that was the wrong thing to say. I didn't mean that suicide was fine. Of course it's not. It's rubbish. I mean, it's awful. It's really bad. He was in serious bother here. Oh God, I'm so sorry. He almost cried with embarrassment. He also needed to vomit very badly. Listen, please don't take anything I've just said to heart. I've got a hangover. He paused. Not, not that that's an excuse, obviously. I mean, I just... Oh, Christ. His shoulder hunched forward and he sank down in his seat, shaking his head. Claire and Adam were staring at him, clearly too stunned to speak. He looked, up, he looked up at them like a puppy that's just shat in the Christmas soup. He had no idea what to say. You're a bit of a dick, Jason, aren't you? Jason was amazed to see that Claire smiled as she said this. I kind of thought that on the phone, but I thought I'd give you the benefit of the doubt. Adam was also smiling. Was that a good sign? The fact that neither of them appeared to want to kill him was a bonus. Do you need a wee minute, pal? Adam asked. Eh, yes, I think I probably do. Do you mind if I go to the toilet? And I think we'll leave it at that poignant moment. I quite like hearing it in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try Jason's London accent, but I thought I'd better not. <laughs> now that gives us a very good sense, I think, of, um, of the relationships between the characters. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about Jason, because he's, you know, he's sincere on one hand, and I guess on the other we can see his, you know, his cogs turning. Yeah, he's, he's kind of in a bit of a dilemma. He's, he's new to the job, um, and, and Brian is going to be his first kind of big signing. So he's, he's concerned that it all goes well, and obviously wants to succeed within the company, and he wants to impress his, bro- his boss, etc. But fundamentally, he's, he's, a, he's a decent guy. And, and as things progress throughout the story, he starts to become uncomfortable with the idea that he might be exploiting Claire and Brian's memory a little. So he has that kind of dilemma throughout the, throughout the book, um, and which is you know, made a little bit worse because as time goes on, he finds himself quite attracted to Claire as well, which complicates things even further. Now, to a layman like myself, um, the story certainly has a strong sense of verisimilitude around the music industry. Um, I, I know you've dabbled a bit in music in, in the past. Um, yeah. Is there a little wish fulfillment going on here? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There's no denying that at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was a, a keen musician before I was ever, I ever thought of writing. Um, and that was kind of my obsession as a teenager and sort of throughout my 20s. Um, so, yeah, I guess it, it never really went anywhere with me personally. So this, this book served the purpose of me kind of imagining how it might have been, you know. Yes, of course, nobody could envy Brian. Well, no, obviously not. Um, and that, that, that's the, the sort of downside of it all as well. Um, Brian's quite a tragic character, obviously. 
um, and I've always seen him mostly in the other characters' memories. We, we do meet him a little bit through flashbacks and also in the first chapter of the book. Um, and, I, you know, I kind of wanted to chat his decline at the same time as his success was taken off in the present day. I wanted to chat his decline in the past, you know. Um, and, yeah, it's certainly a pretty tragic story in that respect. Mm. And, and you handle it quite well. Did you begin with the notion of the suicide? Tell me a little bit about how, how you began writing the book. Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, that, that that basic story idea was the first thing that came to me. Um, I don't really know where it came from, but just this idea popped into my head of a musician or an unsuccessful musician committing suicide and then becoming famous after he was dead. And that that's what sparked the whole book off. Um, so then, although I did, tried to sketch a rough story around that. I really started writing scene one, uh, which was the suicide scene, uh, and everything else just kind of followed on from there. And did, did the actual narrative voice come quite easy? Because there's quite a shift after that first chapter. I mean, Brian only has his little part to play. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it did a little, yeah. I mean, this was the first thing I've ever written, really. Um, so I did have to go back and tinker a little bit with it. But... Um, yeah, I found the character voices coming to me quite naturally, and the narrative voice. Um, I guess these are kind of people that I know, if you like, or people similar to them. So it wasn't too difficult for me to get inside their heads. Was there a character that gave you trouble? What about Phil Dolan, for example? Yeah, he was. I mean, you, you mentioned in your uh, review quite that he's a bit of a caricature. Um, he, he is that typical terrible boss, if you like, um, and. It, if there is a bad guy in the book, I guess he serves that purpose. And yeah, he was probably the only one where I wasn't really in his head. I was just kind of imagining what this type of, you know, larger-than-life, awful executive might be like. Um, and I hopefully I just tried to add as much comedy in his dialogue, etc., as I could to cover for the fact that he was essentially quite a shallow character. <laughs> Although I suppose that, you know, there are people out there that, that are shallow in that sense. Well, yeah, and I think probably in the music business there's quite a high proportion of it compared to perhaps other walks of life, to be honest. Yeah, did, did, so tell me a little bit about your musical past. How, how far did you go with it? I, I didn't go particularly far. My father was a musician, so it's always been around, and I, he taught me to play the guitar when I was about six or so. So it's just kind of one of those constants that's always been there. I don't even remember ever not having a guitar around, you know. Um, but in terms of success. I never really got beyond the point where in the book Brian and Adam got to, i.e. playing in pubs, etc. Um, getting a reasonable following locally, but never quite made the leap um, into the big time, you know. And and yet it doesn't seem like there's all that much written about it, at least not in a literary sense. Yes, I mean, it's not. I think, I think it's one of the problems is it's difficult to convey music in the written world, obviously. And describing music is a bit like describing a piece of art. It's very, very difficult to get, you know, the true sense of it over in the written world. So I think maybe a lot of writers shy away from it for that reason. Mm. And each chapter begins with a little bit of a quote from one of Brian's songs. Yeah. Um, tell me, tell me what you did that for, and what you were hoping it would do in, in terms of well, the reading. The idea for that was really to try and keep the character of Brian alive, if you like because um, obviously, although he's only really in the first chapter and then a couple of flashback chapters, he is essentially the main character of the story, albeit he doesn't actually appear in it all that often. So 
So that seemed to me to be a, a you know, a, a fairly straightforward way of just reminding the reader that he's there. Um, and, you know, at times I would try and see if I could marry the lyrics a, a little bit with the theme of the chapter that was following them. Um, but most of the time it was just there to keep them alive, really. Were you tempted to take those snippets through to full songs? Well, some of them are, actually. Some of them <laughs> come from songs that I, I had written years ago. Um, so in that respect, some of them do exist. Um, but others that were just made up specifically for the book, not really, to be honest. Um, I've, I've kind of stopped writing music a little bit now because I'm more focused on writing um, novels. Um, but, you know, they're, they're always there. I've still got a little note of them all. If I ever make the movie, I might try and get a hand in the soundtrack of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it'd be nice to have a package. Well, that's it. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about your publisher, DA Diamonds. I had uh, DA Diamonds. Um, DA Diamonds is an imprint from the publishers who are called Discovered Authors. They're quite a small publisher um, based in London, and uh, I came across them because they ran a competition in 2006-2007 called the Undiscovered Authors Competition, and basically this was their way of attracting writers onto their um, publishing imprints. So I, get, I, I had just recently finished the novel at that stage and I thought there was no harm in sending it in. And then a few months later I, I was lucky enough to discover that I had won the Scottish Region Prize, that the competition was split into different regions of the UK. Uh, and the prize for that was a, a publishing deal for the book. So in that respect, you know, it was a lot easier in some ways for me than I know other writers find getting my first book out there, and um, I didn't need to go through an agent or anything like that. Um, so, you know, that was great. They are a small company, and, and they don't have a lot of publicity money or a huge marketing department or anything like that. So in that respect, it's kind of maybe a little bit more difficult, and I've had to do as much of that myself as possible. But, you know, on the whole, they're great. Yes, and I suppose there are some benefits to being with a small publisher versus a large one as well. Well, it's certainly a personal, you know, I, I know people personally, I know who I can see I need to speak to for any given uh, issue that arises, and uh, you do have a good relationship. And for example, the cover designer who, co- who made up the cover for the book, had a great time working with him. It was, very, it was a very collaborative process, um, which perhaps maybe in a bigger company that would become quite a faceless, you know, you take what you get kind of deal, whereas in this case, we, we spent a great few weeks back and forward in ideas. And it's a fantastic cover too. I love that black face. I do love it, to be honest. It's, it's an image that I'm so proud of. I kind of use it as my, my little <laughs> um, logo on, it, on all the websites and stuff like that because I like it so much. So yeah, got very lucky in that respect. The designer's name uh, is a guy called Jag Lal. He's a wonderful artist in his own right. Um, and yeah, if anyone's looking for a cover design, look him up. Now, um, did you, as I was reading the book, I couldn't help being, because I'm a writer and not a musician, mm-hmm. of thinking of, um, I guess, the parallel with the publishing industry and what it's like to be a writer and, and to try and, you know, to, to be a good writer and to work yeah. for such a long time. I couldn't help but think of David Foster Wallace. Do you see any parallels with the, the writing industry and, and the music industry in this instance? Um. Well, it's difficult to know because obviously I didn't get too far into the, the music industry um, in terms of uh, becoming a professional. But I think in terms of being a writer and being a, an, an unpublished writer and being an unsuccessful or yet-to-be-successful musician, the struggle is certainly similar. Um, the, the idea of 
trying to perfect what you're doing and make it as good as possible, combined with the, the kind of lack of knowledge about whether whether you're any good or whether you're just being unlucky and not getting some success or if actually you still need to put an awful lot more work in before you're worthy of publication, stroke, record deals. Um, I think the, the main difference would be that most of the time being a musician is quite collaborative, whereas being a writer is quite a solitary pursuit. Um, so, you know, there's always people to bounce ideas off in a band or whatever, but in terms of writing, you're kind of quite on your own, which is, you know, luckily there are online writing groups, etc. that help you out, but it can be quite an isolating business. Yes, and I suppose Jason comes from a writing background, his music writing. Well, yeah, I made him a, a, a former journalist, partly because I wanted him to be new in the job, but I didn't want him to be a particularly young person, you know, I wanted him to be in his 30s. Uh, and I thought, well, a music journalist is the type of person that might move into uh, working for a record label. Um, and I also wanted him to be a kind of combination of quite worldly wise, but also quite naive about how business works as opposed to how reporting on business works, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yes, yes, and I, I feel like that balance was there. It's quite interesting because that he's got two sides to him and you can see yeah. those two sides struggling. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is a battle for him. He, he, he genuinely wants to do the right thing and be a good guy, but equally he does feel loyalty to Philip Dolan, even though he knows he's a terrible boss. He has given him this job, this dream job, so he feels that he, he should and now one of your blog posts, um, you talk about the impact of having a novel published. Um, basically, not huge. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> you, can, you can still shop at Sainsbury's or, or you know, whatever. Yeah, it's amazing where the world didn't change overnight. <laughs> <laughs> did, that, did that surprise you? I don't know, to be honest. I think because, I, you know, I was so excited about the publication process itself. I had no idea really what to expect, but I, you know, I had a great time, as I say, collaborating on the cover, working on the edit. Proofreading wasn't so much fun, but you know, it was all part of the part of the thing. And then it was all leading up to this mythical date publication, and I guess I didn't really know what to expect, to be honest. Um, so I wasn't disappointed, and I wasn't um, overly excited. I was just kind of um, curious really about what would happen <laughs> and you know as it comes out not an awful lot did actually <laughs> <laughs> yes and I suppose that is a, I think that is a surprise though for many authors that I guess the publication yeah. becomes an end point that you look to you know as a shining yeah. light yeah. Uh, and I do I mean I hear, obviously I know a lot of other writers and that is such a goal it's such if I can only see my work in print I've, that's it I've, I've reached you know the pinnacle of where I want to be and that's true because it is an absolutely brilliant feeling to see the work in print, but equally that's only one very small part of the process. You still have to market it, people have to buy it. Um, if you want to write another book or get another book published, people have to buy the first one. So that's not automatic just because it's out there, you know. You've got to do a lot of legwork. Yes, and of course the writing itself is just simply hard work. There's really no other way to, to put it. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's great fun, but it's very hard work um, and you really need to to get through something, so whatever 90,000, 100,000 words takes a long time and takes a lot of hours. Um, and it's a stamina thing, really, you know. It's so easy to, to write a couple of chapters of anything, but keeping it going and to getting to that end point 
and then going back and having to rewrite it and do another draft and another draft and do the edits. It's, it's quite exhausting in a lot of ways. Yes, nothing glamorous about it. <laughs> nothing glamorous at all, sadly, no. <laughs> and and speaking, yet, anyway. speaking about glamorous, um, tell me, you're still doing the day job, aren't you? I am, yes, sir. Yeah. Do you uh, find... Do you find that, you know, I mean, we have to, writers write about life, I suppose. So do you find mm-hmm. that the day job actually provides some, you know, some inspiration for you? Absolutely. I mean, in, in the book, Will You Love Me Tomorrow, the character of Claire, Brian's wife, essentially does the job that I do. Um, she works in social care, working with people with learning disabilities, which is what I've been doing for the last sort of 10 years. So A, it gave me a career to give Claire and hopefully quite a grounded one because I wanted her to be a character who didn't get caught up in all the glamour of the music side of things. And generally, people in that line of work are very grounded and very, um, you know, not cynical is the wrong word, but, but they're very realistic about life and understand that it's okay to laugh even when things aren't so good, you know? Yes, I suppose they deal with a lot of um, a lot of tragedy and drama. and They, they do, but equally they deal with a lot of... Um, hope and fun as well. I think that's, you know, people, I think I get clear a little section in the book where someone asks her about what she does and expresses this, this idea that it must be very challenging and difficult. And actually, 90% of the time, it's a lot of fun, really, mm. you know? Yes, and I suppose I suppose that comes across too with, with Claire. I mean, she makes that, you know, very, well, people yeah, tend to marginalise. Yeah, she, I want, you know, she loves her job and, you know, by the end of the book, she's kind of recommitted ourselves to it um, because it is, it is something that's very worthwhile. Yes, and I, I also, what I like about the book is there is transformation, of course, not of Brian, um, interestingly. Well, no, sadly not. Um, well, yeah, I wanted to give all of the, well, the, the sort of three main characters are Jason, Claire, and Adam, and all three of them really I wanted to end up somewhere different from where they started, you know, um, and I think you know, the, the events of the book, something as momentous as A, the death of a loved one, and then B, this intrusion of the media and fame and money, obviously, as well. Things like that have to change people, so I think it would have been very odd if they hadn't yes. transformed in some respects. Now, your, both of your novels, and I'll get to Scratch in a minute, but um, mm-hmm. both of your novels are set in Glasgow. Do you think you'll yeah. always set your novels in Glasgow? I think I will, to be honest. Partly because obviously it's, it's where I live and it's where I know, and, and I'm very proud of it. I love Glasgow as a city, and I think although there are some great Scottish authors in the wider world, it's maybe a little bit underrepresented. Most people, when they think of Britain outside of the UK, think of London, if you like, so I kind of like flying the flag for Scotland a little bit in that respect. Um, but also, it, it's, it's easier, you know, let's be honest. I, I can use real locations, I can you know, look at characteristics of real glass-eating people and bring them into the characters, etc. So, yeah, I think it's, I kind of like the idea of actually having all my novels not only set in Glasgow, but set in the same Glasgow, if you know what I mean. Um, so, for example, there's a bar that's in Will You Love Me Tomorrow, which is also in Scratch, which is the second book, because I kind of like the idea that all of these characters, even in the different books, are living beside each other, you know. Do, will you will you have any or is there any connection? Because you finished, have you finished Scratch now? I have just finished it. Yes, uh, just yeah. very recently. 
And is there a link between them? Are there any characters that reappear, even minor ones? There are no characters that reappear other than a very incidental uh, person who walks in the pub. That, you know, uh, there's this pub, the basement, which uh, Claire and Jason, etc., meet up in Glasgow, and that pub then is actually one of the main locations in Scratch. So there's one character that, that crosses over, but not in a huge way. And, and tell me a little bit about the novel. What's it about? Scratch is um, it's basically it's, it's, it's a comedy. Um, it's, it's more an out-and-out comedy, I suppose, than Will You Love Me Tomorrow, and obviously there's a bit of tragedy involved in Will You Love Me Tomorrow, whereas Scratch is more just a, a relationship comedy, if you like. It's, it's about a character um, who, at the age of, sort of 33, realises that he's not made a very good job of being an adult and decides to start again. So he, he gives up his job, he sells his house, pays off his debts and moves back in with his parents, basically puts himself back exactly where he was when he was 18 and tries to start his adult life again from scratch. And was it, how was the writing for you? Was it harder or easier or were there you know, some constraints relating to it? Um, was it? I think it was easier in that I was a little bit more confident in what I was doing. When I was writing Will You Love Me Tomorrow, I had, you know, I'd never, never been in a creative writing course. I'd never done anything to teach myself how to write other than just be a reader. But by the time I got to scratch, obviously I'd been through the process with Will You Love Me, I'd also made some uh, writing friends who, you know, we would exchange critiques, etc. So I kind of knew a little bit more of what I was doing, if you like. And also because I knew it was first and foremost the aim with it was just to be funny, to be as funny as possible, then that that's quite freeing, you know, because you can let your imagination just run riot. Obviously, you then have to go back and take quite a lot of it out because it's rubbish. But um, So, yeah, yeah, it was quite easy. And again, in the same way as Will You Love Me, I kind of, that's about the music, that, which is something I've been involved with. It's about, you know, depression and mental illness, which again, through my work, etc., I've been involved with. And it's about Claire's job working with learning disabilities. So these are all things that were quite familiar to me. And Scratch is basically about working in a pub, which I did for about 10 years, um, and trying to get on with your parents as an adult, which is something I think we all still go through. Um, so it was all some very familiar ground, you know, so it was great fun to write. And do you, are you, you know, has that all been taken up by your publisher? Will that be coming out? I haven't yet approached them with it. As I say, I've literally just finished the edits, etc. Um, very recently. I'm kind of toy. I, I don't have an agent at the moment, as I say, because Will You Love Me Tomorrow was published as a prize, out of a prize. So I'm, I'm kind of like the idea of maybe trying to make an agent first with Scratch and see what happens there um, before I tie myself down with it. And uh, you've just started a third one as well, haven't you? I'm playing around with a couple of ideas for a third one. Yeah, I think to say I've started it might be overstated a little bit. I've got two or three different ideas that I've as I said earlier, I've written a, maybe one chapter or two chapters with a couple of ideas. It's a case of trying to get to figure out which one's going to take me the furthest, you know. But yeah, the ideas are there. I did have a wee dry spell there after finishing the first draft of Scratch, and I wonder if maybe I've only got two books in me, you know, which is perfectly feasible and might still end up being the case. But, uh, you know, hopefully I've got enough to start working on properly now for number three. Yeah, that's excellent. And are there any other themes that you're particularly keen to tackle? Um, 
Well, see, I think, again, I think that's why the dry spell occurred, because I kind of covered all the areas of my own life, if you like, between Scratch and Will You Love Me Tomorrow. So, so number three is going to basically be complete fiction, if you know what I mean by that. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to do the research on this one, um, which is quite freeing in a lot of ways, you know, um, because it means I can write about characters that I don't know. Um, and maybe situations that I'm not familiar with. Um, so I'm looking forward to that, but obviously it also means it's such a huge potential scope there that trying to narrow it down and, and find a, a coherent direction is proving quite difficult. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I think I want to keep going with the comedy and I want to keep... Um, I want to keep the characters real as, as my real, you know... That's my main aim, is to keep the characters realistic and honest, I think. Excellent. Well, that is all we have time for today, I'm afraid. Thank you very much, Danny. Good luck with Scratch. Thank you very much. Appreciate talking to you. We'll be looking out for it. Our next guest um, is Dale Beaumont, who will be on the show next month to talk to us about how to write and publish your own best-selling book. I'm particularly keen myself to learn about the best-selling part. So um, we'll see you then. Thank you.